Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello and welcome to the Heredity Podcast. I'm your host, James Bergen. You've joined me at the right time, in the right place, to hear some fascinating new research about the population genetics of the southern right whale. Now, as with many wild animals, the relationship between humans and southern right whales has been far from benign. In fact, the whaling industry almost wiped them out in the early 1900s. And while they may have recovered in terms of their numbers, we don't really know what's happened to them in terms of their genetic diversity, population dynamics, or behaviours. Fortunately, a host of researchers are pooling their resources in order to delve deep into these questions. And recently, one of their papers was published in Heredity, titled Incorporating Non-Equilibrium Dynamics into Demographic History Inferences of a Migratory Marine Species. Now, this paper uses a really impressive data set of mitochondrial sequences and nuclear markers to investigate the circumpolar population structure of the southern right whale, the species' historical demography, and its effective population size. I caught up with lead author Dr. Emma Carl from the University of Auckland in New Zealand and one of her co-authors, Professor Oscar Cacciuti from the University of St Andrews here in the UK. And first up, I was just interested in finding out a bit more about the species in general and the motivation behind the paper. Of course, this meant that we had to start with the inescapable legacy and impact of the whaling industry. So southern right whales are one of three species of right whales. And they have the dubious honour of being called right whales by the whalers because they are large, slow swimming and float when dead. So to the early whalers with their handheld harpoons and rowboats, they were the right whales to kill. So this means that they were one of the first species to really be hunted in any great numbers. In fact, between 1790 and 1980, over 150,000 southern right whales were killed. They were actually granted legal protection around 1930, but they were still taken at low level. And again, in the 1970s, illegal Soviet whaling probably killed around half of the global population at the time. And so this kind of very long, prolonged demographic bottleneck means that they may have undergone a genetic bottleneck. Uh, And as the population has slowly recovered in some parts of its former range, it's been quite well studied. So places like Argentina and South Africa and Australia, and because they're migratory species, they're going from socializing areas around the coast in winter to high latitude offshore summer feeding areas. So there may be animals from different wintering grounds going to the same feeding ground. So essentially, we've got this combination of history of exploitation and recovery from this combined with uh, what we call migratory culture. So right whales have one calf about every three years. That calf is born in their mother's preferred wintering ground and will travel with her to her preferred feeding ground and often back again. So in this way, a calf will learn their mother's preferred migratory destinations in its first year of life. And so these behaviors can contribute to uh, the shaping of population genetic patterns. And we do find this in southern right whales based on some of earlier work we published. That was just based on a work done in the Indo-Pacific. And we were interested to see the population genetic structure of right whales uh, on a circumpolar level in this paper. Great. So, I mean, like you're talking there about the whaling causing this like really big population crash and they've recovered quite well, I assume? Um, They've recovered in about half of the areas where they formerly were. So before whaling, we think there were about 11 to 13 different wintering grounds, which were kind of coastal whaling areas. And they've only really recovered in great numbers in about six to seven of these. 
kind of the interesting thing there is that you're talking about the population genetics of this species that covers several oceans, really. And it sounds like humans have completely destroyed their natural population structure. So I'm really curious about the exact aim of this study and what it was you were hoping to find out. So we were interested in looking at contemporary population structure and whether there'd been changes in connectivity through time. Maybe I can add uh, something more broadly when you study species. The overall question is, you know, what are the processes that lead to the present Mm. pattern of genetic structuring? And this can be from, you know, very different uh, processes. It can be just that uh, the populations separated very recently and they share a lot of genetic characteristics that are the same. Or it might be that they, uh, you know, diverged a very long time ago and then they had migration, which led to these similar characteristics. So whenever you study, uh, you know, when the question here was, was there a change in connectivity through time and maybe due to whaling, then you also have to consider the whole evolutionary history of the species. Yeah, for sure. No, that's a very good point to make. And I'm really interested about your sampling. I think in one of your data sets, you claim to have about 10% of the current global population represented. So, I mean, how did you go about obtaining these samples? So this paper is the result of a large international collaboration where we've brought together many different groups that have been studying southern right whales in different locations for several decades. So to collect skin samples from living whales, we use a modified veterinary device or a crossbow, and that fires a small dart, and the tip of the dart hits the whale and pulls out a plug of skin about the same size as your fingernail. And that typically gives you very high-quality DNA. And so because we've brought together lots of different people and different groups, we've managed to consolidate several large data sets from various long-term studies. There's particularly large data sets from Argentina, New Zealand, and South Africa. So we worked together to try and make sure that everything was directly comparable. Great. I mean, I think you're the first geneticist I've ever talked to who samples of the crossbow. <laughs> Sounds uh, like an old school style scientific expedition. So I'm really curious, you got your samples, you sequenced them, you did a lot of really cool analyses, and I'm really interested about the results you were finding in terms of their population structure and their connectivity, what that's kind of telling you about the history of the species and their current structure. So I think one of the coolest things we found was that Using approximate Bayesian computation, we compared different historical scenarios, and the most likely is that whales in the Indo-Pacific and the South Atlantic were probably separated and then came back into secondary contact. And this does stem from some earlier work done by Natalie Pattenaut and colleagues that showed that the mitochondrial DNA pattern initially found was consistent with several different scenarios, and we did ABC to compare these, and isolation and secondary contact was the most likely So with that secondary contact, what kind of timescales are you talking about? Do you know what might have disrupted that migration? What we had hypothesized is that it was probably triggered by the last glacial maximum or more likely the kind of change after the last glacial maximum when sea levels started to rise because this would have disrupted their shallow coastal water wintering areas. You know, you can imagine as sea levels rise, these areas would become deeper and perhaps less suitable for carving. The ABC analyses were pretty consistent with that, although as often happens, the posterior distributions were quite broad. I feel many <laughs> uh, people will be familiar with that. Yep. But I think it's it's kind of a, you know, these animals can have very fixed behavioral patterns and then something will change and will kind of potentially force a, a shift in some of their behaviors. And it's potentially what we see with the more contemporary estimates of migration as well. So we did see evidence of an increase in migration rate 
subsequent to whaling, so in the past couple of generations. However, I think this work is a bit of a cautionary tale. So many methods for estimating connectivity assume constant population size and migration through time. So with the right whales and many species that have undergone exploitation, you've obviously had a change in population size through time. And with the right whales, we have isolation and secondary contact. And so a lot of these methods that you're using to estimate connectivity may be biased because of this. And you just have to have that in the back of your mind that these non-equilibrium population dynamics can impact these commonly used methods. So no, I mean, I think it's uh, some really cool results. So how can your study kind of help inform the conservation of this species, you know, in the wake of the whaling and current threats like climate change and that kind of stuff? So in terms of right whales, this is a species that has a network of migratory destinations, you know, multiple wintering grounds, multiple feeding grounds. So you really have to consider what is the unit to conserve. And so traditionally for right whales, they've been managed on the wintering ground basis. And what we know from their behavior is that animals will show quite long-term fidelity to these areas. And it's really these animals that are coming back and having calves that are kind of driving the recruitment. So we can see that not only they they show genetic difference, they're actually demographically independent. So the, the recruitment internally to these wintering grounds is more important for their persistence than migration from elsewhere. And so if we want these wintering grounds to persist through time, we have to manage them independently. And so we actually argued that behavioral variability is as valid as morphological variability or ecological variability when trying to decide if individuals from different populations are exchangeable. And so when you're looking at the Indo-Pacific versus the South Atlantic, there is genetic differentiation, but they're also using quite different foraging grounds. Animals from Argentina will use the Patagonian shelf and around South Georgia, and animals from New Zealand, for example, will use this tropical convergence south of South Australia. And because they show fidelity to these areas, there's less likely to be exchange. So these behavioral mechanisms are, again, promoting isolation. And so we argued right whales in the two ocean basins should be considered distinct population segments. So you mentioned there that some of your whales visit South Georgia, and I understand that you're heading back there to the field pretty soon. So I'm just really curious about where you're planning on taking this work next. Yeah, so I'm quite interested in seeing how their behavior may influence their resilience to climate change. So, you know, if they're quite conservative with their behavioral patterns, they may not adapt to shifting prey as much as other species. And so we're going down to South Georgia in order to understand how the whales there are recovering from whaling and how they're using their environment. And so the British Antarctic Survey is leading the expedition and we're going down to put tags on the whales to track them throughout the South Georgia and South Sandwich Islands areas, taking genetic samples to look at genetic connectivity and also photo ID to match back from this foraging ground to their wintering grounds around South Africa and South America. We're also working with it, you know, this kind of large collaboration to analyze stable isotopes. Well, we've got stable isotope data rather from about 1,200 samples around the world. And that will give us a really nice insight into whereabouts these animals are foraging now. And we can compare that to whaling data to see which foraging areas they were using historically that have been lost. That sounds amazing. The other thing that you might want to mention is also, you know, the fact that Emma has been generating the genomic data that we can use to have much more uh, power to say something more precise about the effect of past events. 
Yeah, so we have produced representation genomic data for about 350 right whales from around the world. And so I'm working on a a follow-up paper to more explicitly investigate how their migratory culture is influencing connectivity on a global scale. Oh, fantastic. Oh, can I say one more thing? Yeah, yeah, of course. Again, I'd like to thank all my collaborators and co-authors on this work. And if you're interested in hearing about how our South Georgia fieldwork goes, you can follow our blog at the whalednalab.auckland.ac.au. Oh, you can definitely say that. Great. That was Dr. Emma Carl, a Rutherford Discovery Fellow at the University of Auckland and an Honorary Research Fellow at the University of St Andrews, and Professor Oscar Cacciuti, also of the University of St Andrews. They are just two of the many researchers who contributed to the recent heredity paper incorporating non-equilibrium dynamics into demographic history inferences of a migratory marine species. And usually at this point in the podcast, I would encourage you to go and read the full research article on the Heredity website. And don't get me wrong, I totally am. But I also strongly encourage you to go and follow the blog that Emma mentioned, which will allow you to keep up to date with the project as it develops in real time while they're in the field collecting new data. I love this idea, and I cannot wait to read it myself. So again, you can find it at whalednalab.auckland.ac.nz. As always, you can find the paper featured in today's podcast on the Heredity website. That's www.nature.com forward slash hdy. And while you're there, you can discover more about the journal and how you can get your research published in it. Heredity is, as you know, the official journal of the Genetic Society and part of the Springer Nature Publishing Group. If you want to keep up to date with Heredity, you can follow us on Twitter, at Heredity Journal, and you can also follow the Genetic Society on Twitter, at Gensoc UK, or you can find it on Facebook. And you know what? Why don't you drop us an email at hereditypodcast.gen at gmail.com. I'm James Bergen. Tune in next time. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.